To many, Wes Craven was an essential master of horror for this generation of cinema. While his later films didn't have the bite that early works once had, his passion for the genre and his dedication to ensuring each of his films had an impactful message delivered among the blood and guts made him a director always worth watching. Part of that came from his constantly evolving oeuvre. Craven never really returned to the same topics, and his films were always significantly different from each other. One thing that stands out with each of them, however, is his warranted criticism of society throughout his years in filmmaking. Craven is well known for his metacritical leanings in the Scream series and his sequel film, New Nightmare, but he also handled hot topics across the political spectrum. His first feature, The Last House on the Left, was an early video nasty with quite a few detractors. Rape and vengeance are, obviously, controversial themes, but Craven was unafraid to tackle them anyway. Those quick to criticize The Last House on the Left would cite poor production, visceral bloodshed, and Craven's uncompromised filming of rape sequences as evidence of an exploitative film. Yet Craven's aim was not just to capitalize on exploitation, but the propagation of it in society, in the acts of vengeance and violence. Last House is horrifying not just because of its initial rape murders, but also because its main characters are both victims and perpetrators. A little-known film in Craven's canon came next, titled The Fireworks Woman, where he shot real pornography instead of simulated rape sequences under the name Abe Snake. While I'm not sure he would, in his later years, celebrate his hardcore X-rated feature, he did at least choose a pretty awesome pseudonym. The Hills Have Eyes was the next film to really rock the horror world. Written and directed by Craven, it tells the story of savages in an unpopulated area of California that wreak terror on an unsuspecting family. Again, Craven utilizes his roots in exploitation to tell a horrifying tale, one that emphasizes ultraviolence and, again, rape in its plot. But its scariest connotation is that, again, the worst evil is humanity. His most well-known contribution to horror, however, and the one that has inspired sequels, comics, books, television, and even a popular horror blog over at Freddy in Space, is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy Krueger, so iconic now that probably every person in America at least knows of him, is one-third of the horror monster crew, and the inventiveness of his work in the dream world fueled countless nightmares since the opening day of its release. Johnny Depp owes Craven some thanks, though he's probably too big to admit it and didn't even appear in the Never Sleep Again documentary. Heather Langenkamp clearly has appreciation for the man, and Robert Englund would probably just be some guy in some low-budget horror movies if it wasn't for Craven's casting. Scream's meta-themes also cemented Craven's place in horror, again for slasher films. Spawning three sequels, the series consistently poked fun at both itself and the horror genre, and then, miraculously, was able to circumvent generic flaws. Let's face it, Scream 3 wasn't so good, but Craven more than made up for that with the impressive Scream 4. It's hard to bring up all of the things that Craven has contributed to horror, because this retrospective would be hours and hours long. He had a hand in so many great releases, The People Under the Stairs, The Serpent in the Rainbow, Shocker, even some Twilight Zone episodes in the 80s. And for those unfamiliar with any of them, now is a good time to seek them out. More than his film contributions to horror, though, was his good nature. He was always willing to be interviewed, graciously accepting the chance to talk about his creations. Craven was an intelligent, delightful man, and he gave horror some of the best stories the genre has seen. I'm proud to say that my review of The People Under the Stairs for The Moon is Dead World was one of his last retweets on his Twitter page. Whether he actually did it, or some PR rep did, I'd like to think my positive review was a comfort to him in his last days. Wes Craven will be missed by both of us at Blood and Black Rum Podcast, and because of this occasion, we've decided to postpone our coverage of European and Vegas vacation for this special podcast about Wes Craven and New Nightmare. And I'm here with Martin again. How's it going? Who will be putting in his two cents on Wes Craven. Um, 
we actually tried to do a little something different today and actually scripted a little bit instead <laughs> of uh, off-the-cuff performance. Um, so, and I thought it was kind of a, a time where we really should take the time to actually put 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 a little bit more effort into it, I think. Um, Wes Craven recently passing um, at a young, I mean, not young, but uh, unfortunately a younger age than probably a lot of people would have liked. Um, 76, brain cancer is awful. But um, he did have a great many years in the horror genre. Now, and did anyone know, like, was that like public knowledge? That I don't really think it was public knowledge. I mean, I don't, there's probably what were some people that knew that he was sick, but I think mostly it was kind of just kept within his family and you know he hadn't I don't think he had really made many public appearances or anything for for very long um and I know I mean he did he he was in like Never Sleep Again and stuff like in that documentary which came out a few years ago um but other than that no I don't really I, it was a surprise to me I thought it was something else entirely because I didn't really know he was sick so I mean yeah, neither did I when I woke up the you know, the next morning, I, you know, first thing I saw on, like, Yahoo's homepage was that yeah, he we, died, and I was, yeah. was kind of, sh- you know, yeah, that's, really shocked and, like, flabbergasted. Like, I know. I got a I got a phone call from my wife at, you know, she was at work, and she was on the internet, she had just seen that, so, yeah, it was crazy, because um, I remember, it happened, like, the night before, I think it was Sunday night, yeah. that everybody really kind of started finding out, but uh, I didn't hear about it till Monday morning, um, and, yeah, I mean, it it was a shock to me, and definitely, I think, like, the whole horror community really just felt the blow. Like, there was just, you know, my whole, my entire Facebook page was just totally covered with, you know, news about Wes Craven and retrospectives and, and writings about the man and, you know, how great he was and what he contributed to horror. And obviously, you're going to have some of those people that were like, oh, he really wasn't that great, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is not really that good, but... I, I think I for think the most part, I don't think there would be that many people saying that. There were actually. I, 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 I do think, have some on my page that were. I think they were probably just being trolls. I would say so, because um, not nothing brings out an asshole like you know death, a death, brain yeah. cancer, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, no, I hear you. But um, we wanted, we really wanted to take this podcast opportunity to kind of like discuss uh, some of Wes Craven's movies, and then we we decided that we're you know. Here at the podcast, we generally try to cover one film. Mm. Uh, we're not, you know, I know some other podcasts, they try to get into, like, more, you know, multiple films at a time. It makes um, it harder to go in detail. It yeah, does. It makes more. it a lot harder to go into detail, and um, it makes it's a lot more time for us, too. We don't, we don't have a ton of time to sit down and watch, like, multiple films all at the same time. So, um, but we did, you know, we put aside vacation and everything. This would be, like, kind of a special podcast in between that, and we will get back to that the next time. Um, and, um, but actually we are, before we, before we really move into, you know, all the talk about Wes Craven and, and his previous films and, and things like that, and the, the film that we're going to get to discussing today, we should take some time out to talk about what we're drinking, because that's always a big, big thing with Blood and Black Rum podcast, and it's surprisingly, it is black rum today. We do have <clears throat> crack and black rum on hand. We've got the whole, what is, one point, one point... Five liter? Is that what it is? I call it the big ass one. The big ass octopus one. One point seven five liter, which was on sale, um, and it's my favorite black rum. I've got to say. 
I haven't tried cat. It's the only black rum I've ever had because I'm not the biggest uh, liquor guy in the world outside of uh, whiskeys. But mm-hmm. but I like it. It's very smooth. It's got yeah. spice and it's great to mix with. Right now we got to mix with uh, cream soda. Cream soda that I made from the Soda Stream, which is actually pretty good. What a plug! They're gonna have to pay you now. Hmm. I know. I wish they would. <laughs> um, we're also a little different for the uh, podcast is we're outside today. It's a nice day. We're coming to the end of summer. Feels like beginning fall of fall, today. and it's. I think it's another good, um, like throwback to Craven's movies. I mean, we got to get you know the fall atmosphere in here as well. So um, we're doing that. We're we're listening to the Nightmare on Elm Street soundtrack, which might not be too loud on the podcast, but it gives good ambience to the to the proceedings. So we're also going to switch off back and forth to Harpoon beer. So. Oktoberfests and IPAs and stuff like that. Nice so. uh, Massachusetts brewery. Oh yeah, very good. I've been there. You, uh, it's got a great bathroom. I want to say that. You uh, are right on the harbor, so when you're taking a piss at the urinal, you can look straight out onto the harbor. It's uh, <clears throat> there's a window right there. It's uh, I like to call Harpoon the kind of like Sam Adams' little brother. Well, it is. Yeah, I mean, because it's uh, it's smaller. It's smaller. It's Massachusetts based. Doesn't get anywhere near the attention no. of a lot of other craft breweries out there, but they are very good. I that. think they're really good. I think they're really kind of underrated for the area, actually. I do. It's too. more like yeah. everything around here where we are is Sam. Sam, Sam, Sam Adams, and everything. Saranac and and, yeah, and, and Saranac, too, but Harpoon really gets the shaft on that one. So Their UFO series is also... That would be their really. unfiltered series, and they have an unfiltered pumpkin ale. Which is really good. Wintertime, they have unfiltered gingerbread, which is fantastic. And yep. Don't so try it with the uh, any drinking games like we did with Christmas with the Cranks. It's pretty difficult. <laughs> but, but so check them out. They're really good. Yeah, check out Harpoon Brewery um, if you can find them. Definitely one to check out. Um, and with um, today's West Craven retrospective, I did look up if there was a Freddy Krueger alcoholic drink. There is. I didn't have any of the ingredients on hand to make it, and I don't think I would really like it that much. It's um, it's a, basically a shot. It's a half ounce Jägermeister, half ounce Sambuca, and a half ounce of vodka, right? Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, vodka. So uh, you got one and a half ounces, and I really don't think that I would like it that much. Sounds like death. I don't like Jägermeister that much. Um, the only time I've ever had it was my freshman year in college, and I had that with Monster. That's what we called the Anchor Bombs instead of uh, Red Bull. Yep. And it was tolerable, but... Yeah, I mean, it's okay. I I wouldn't seek it out, really. I don't think... Nothing I'd ever... I don't think I'd, like, buy it for myself. No. So that's why I didn't have anything on hand, and I definitely don't have Sambuca, so... I've never had Sambuca. I've never had it either. And vodka, to me, is just death. Yeah, I, don't, I have the vodka. I can do that. I have a sh- cheap vodka. The smell of vodka alone. Yeah, is, I don't. I don't makes really me like sick. Not that much anyway. <laughs> not not enough to like drink it straight. And I can have it in things. It's it's the uh, the person's mixed drink. That's what, you know anybody. Well, it's good. Yeah, if you mix it and stuff, it's yeah. fine. But I mean, on its own, it's I'd much yeah. rather instead of that potato go to vodka. Become, <laughs> become a baked potato with baked potato cheese and, and uh, chives and a sour loaded cream. baked potato with bacon on it. Um, but anyway, we should probably get to the West Craven retrospective um, now after the interlude that we've had here. Um, 
So, we watched yesterday, we watched New Nightmare. The, the uh, Basically, the sequel to Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, done by Wes Craven. I mean, there were sequels in between that. There was, you know, 2 and uh, Dream Warriors and things like that. But I really consider New Nightmare the, the sequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street that Wes Craven started. Um, so we watched that. We'll get into that review a little bit later. But right now, I just want to take some time to talk about Wes Craven's filmography, the, you know, all of his his uh, movies that he's directed, and um, just kind of take a look and see, you know, what what we can get out of that because he has had some great ones. And A Nightmare on Elm Street, one of my favorite movies, one of my favorites. I don't know about you. Um, I like it, and to me, um, when it comes to horror movie like icons I mean I've always been more of a Halloween series yeah um, as I told you last night when you're watching new nightmare um, you've seen all the Halloweens I've seen, seen I've all seen all the... I've seen all the Halloweens but when it comes to like Jason I've only seen a few Friday the 13th mm-hmm. I, and when it comes to nightmare on Elm Street I've only seen uh, the first one and now new nightmare and then bits and pieces of other ones. Uh, I think I saw, like, as a kid, a little bit of, like, Dream Warriors and uh, Nightmare 5. Other than that, I didn't, never really was exposed to it, because, like I told you before, I've never really been a horror fan, and most of the horror films that I've seen over my life have just been, for the most part, older, older ones, like, you know, the more 30s, 40s, and 50s films, but, like, and then I'd see, like, uh, other ones. My big experience with Wes Craven and the reason why, as a director, I love him, even though I haven't seen a great portion of his filmography, is the Scream series. I can specifically remember being six years old as a child of the 90s. I can remember being six years old and my parents rented Scream, and I was supposed to be in bed, and I stuck out. And they just started watching Scream after they got it from the movie rental place, and it was right in the beginning when... Uh, I can't remember the character, but it gets their head chopped right off. And that just scaring the living hell out of me and running back to my room to go to bed. I I also remember my parents renting Scream. I remember my dad was really, really interested in seeing it. He really wanted to see Scream. Um, so, we I, I remember, like, I was younger, too. And this was the days when, you know, freaking Video World was still there. Video World was the place to get your movies, along with Which like I think it was just a local chain for around. It us. probably was, yeah. Probably was just a local chain for us. Um, but Video World is no no longer there. My dad also used to own a video store, and actually, I think I remember the one. The, I think actually, Scream we got from the local grocery store because they they were also doing video rentals. <laughs> so we got it from the grocery store. Actually, I'm pretty sure, um, but. I remember him being really interested, and I remember me being super hesitant to watch it because I was young and I wasn't really sure if I was going to like it or not. And I remember the first scenes with Drew Barrymore, um, where you know she's talking on the phone with Ghostface, and all. And I, the one scene that really stuck out to me was when she turned on the light and her boyfriend was there in the chair. I didn't really, I never really saw at that time what he like what was happening to him in the chair, but I knew it wasn't good, and I didn't <laughs> like it from there. And I was like, oh, man, that's... You know, so that really scared me when I watched it the first time. Um, but I remember being, like... A- after that, after I, I started, you know, watching horror movies more and got a little bit older, 
Scream 2 and 3 I was fascinated with. Me even too. even though Scream 3 I, is really not that good when you... And even Scream, Scream 2, 2. Is, is, is okay, but um, I remember being really fascinated with Scream 2 and 3 to the point where I used to be making comics of Scream 2 and Scream 3 with Brandon Brown, <laughs> our, my, our friend from from high school. Um, um, yeah, no, same thing. I... Um, I didn't watch. It's not like I watched the, the sequels too, like Scream Two and Three. Years later, when I was older, I watched them mm-hmm. with, like, you know, as growing up in the decade. So when Scream Two came out when I was eight years old, I remember uh, ordering it on Directv one night and watching it with my family and just, you know, kind of just being scared shitless, but you know, liking it. And then by the time Scream Three came out, you know, being a young teenager, I was able to sit through that by myself, you know. Yep, and uh, that to me is probably the one that really got me into the series. Actually, yeah, the worst one because I was old enough to watch it and truly enjoy it, and you know, yep. kind of understand more what was going on. And this is a sad thing too. Being a young teenager, I also loved it because it had that damn cream, uh, Creed music video at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> within a year or two, I'd learn better from that. But it had a name like Cotton in it. <laughs> I like I love that name, Cotton. But I mean, yeah, I, I know that Scream Three now isn't really it doesn't hold up very well. But I I did I did think and this is very you know, I, I know this this is a controversial opinion, but I did really like Scream Four. I love, love Scream, Scream 4. I love Scream Four. I know it's like I know a lot of people are on the fence, they're like, No, I don't like it. It's not you know, it, it's Which, really not that good. But I don't understand. I don't understand how they don't no. like it. It's that surprises the hell out of yeah. me. Too. I think Scream Four is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think after the first Scream, I think it's probably the second best Scream. I would say so too. Because I think, and this is now being an adult and you know having cognitive reasoning, like just watching the screams to me now. This is why I love the, the film franchises because it the meta aspect of it and this kind of critique about it. Like, one of the things I've told Ryan several times that distracts me from watching horror films is kind of the campiness, the weirdness, the stupidness, the over-the-topness. Like, it just doesn't appeal to me that much. And when you watch Scream and how self-referential it is, referring to all of that, it's, you know, to me, it just comes off as incredibly smart and incredibly witty at the same time. And Scream 4, with our now more digital modern age that first like 10 minute sequence like right before we got to the opening credits I thought was hilarious of like you know film within a film within a film you know yep well and it's um I mean it's becoming harder to create a meta film that doesn't feel like it's already been played out I mean we've got so many now we've got so many that are really being films about themselves and films about slasher films and, and I mean a lot of that has been really successful. I mean, the Cabin in the Woods is like one that I can think of that's like been super successful um, as a film that really references other horror films. Uh, and I, I did love that film. Um, but I mean, with Scream Four, it, it, I feel like at that point when Scream Four came out, it was a lot harder, even harder than when it was, you know, doing Scream Two and Scream Three. A lot harder to do the self-referential thing and actually say something different. Yeah. And I think that Scream Four really ends up doing that. And surprisingly to me, it manages to do it and and shock me at the same time. Like I didn't, when I was watching it, I didn't know what was coming from it. I didn't know, you know, what to look for because it really changes things up quite a bit. I think one of the best parts too about Scream Four is, um, and I think this should be a film later on that we review, kind of as like a 
you know, kind of like a hidden gem type film, is I think one of the best parts of the film is the fact that compared to all the other horror films and, and sc- all the other screams, the killer in that one isn't motivated by revenge. It's just for fame. And that's something that kind of sticks with t- today's society on, you know, the 15 minutes of fame, reality TV aspect, you know, YouTube. And that, to me, was just, like, a really cool idea that, you know... Like, it wasn't for revenge or anything like that. They just wanted to become famous. They just yeah. wanted to be looked at as, you know, as some hero and also a victim, too. Yep. I thought that was, you know, really awesome. I I mean, I, I've, I've only seen Scream 4 once, but I, even from that from that one viewing, I don't, I have so many good things to say about it. I mean, maybe if, I mean, I don't, actually, I don't even think if I watched it now, I would have, you know, bad things to say about it, really. I, I just liked it in general. I liked that it was a return to form. And honestly, which is I went... Ra- which is, I say, which is rare for most films. Yeah. When usually these days, when you see a reboot, as we've said several times already on the podcast, when you see a reboot, a remake, or a sequel 20 years after the fact, you end up leaving the movie groaning, like, why the hell are they doing this? And that's, and, how, and that's what I felt like was going to happen. Was, I actually didn't have high expectations for I didn't it even see it in the theater. Yeah, because well, I, I didn't either. I, I didn't bother. I, I waited until yeah, I got I to bother. Netflix. Yep, but it's one of those rare. And I don't know if it was because you had you know Wes Craven coming back to the fold for that. If that's what you know made it, or you had everybody basically. You yeah, had, you had everybody coming back. So I don't know if that's what made it great, but I think I think that kind of helps. This is the same. Yeah. It's the same thing with Mad Max and Fury Road. Who the hell going into that thought that would be? A great sequel, and you know, a necessary sequel twenty years later. Ryan and I did it, but we saw it, loved it, and we'll you know. I will see it again. We should. Yeah. I mean, we should get that pretty soon, actually. But I think um, moving on, we we had touched on a little bit about a nightmare on Elm Street, and you said that you you know you liked it, but you are more into like Halloween more than than a nightmare on Elm Street. Like, is there? Is there a reason for that? I mean, do you like the Halloween atmosphere? Is that why like, I, Halloween has a better atmosphere? Or I mean, you don't I, like the goofiness of... Well, A Nightmare on Elm Street 1 is really not that goofy compared to the, the rest of the sequels. Well, I mean, I think that holds... As you know, that holds true, I think, for most horror franchises. The first one starts off, you know, ser- more serious, like yeah. Halloween, like Friday the 13th. And then, as you know, they're crapping out sequels every year. It just, you know, becomes a parody of a parody of a parody of a parody. Yeah. I, I think, it for me, it was just more kind of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up on TV, like, you know, for the well, most yeah, part... yeah, I mean, they would... Yeah, Halloween populated yeah. the airways. I mean, AMC would always pick it up. You'd have... And then with Friday the... Same thing, I've seen more Friday the 13th. I've seen most of them. And that's because Spike would do the marathons all the time of... Yeah. Uh, Jason series. But for the most part, you know, Freddy kind of got neglected. And... I when that. I was when I was a kid going to the movie store, you know, I never really went out of my way to go down the horror aisle to, you know, look at the movies and stuff. Sometimes I would and just kind of look at, like, the box art and think it was kind of cool, but there's nothing ever really that would catch my eye. The only time I'd watch horror films like that would be with if my family rented a movie and I decided to sit down and watch it with them. Other than that, you know, if I wasn't looking at, like, the N64 games, I was, you know, seeing yeah. what the new releases were. Well, I know that um, AMC used to play Dream Warrior a lot. Dream Warriors a lot, but other than that, like you're right, 
the the original Nightmare on Elm Street didn't get played often, and that might have been a rights issue. It might have been something else, but I don't remember seeing it that often on television, like the first, the original. Um, but I do. I mean, I have. A, there's a special place in my heart for Nightmare on Elm Street one. I think it's. It has to do with Wes Craven's atmosphere in it. I think that he did a, a fantastic job with like the this the feeling that you get when you watch it. I I think that he did a great job of you know coming up with that layer for Freddy, the uh, you know the boiler room, the boiler area. I think that's a great place that he has there, and I think and I just love all of those little details that he put into it. I and I think. More so than any of the other nightmares, I'll say any of them, even New Nightmare, it's way more serious, way it's a lot darker, and it it has the most scares. I think I think it has the the creepiest scenes throughout because you have that one scene where you know Nancy comes out and she sees her friend being dragged down the hallway in a body bag, mm-hmm. just being dragged down. I mean that's just a, a a terrifying scene because of the way that it's shot. It's you're not sure is it a dream is it reality in the way that reality and dream world meshes together is just kind of a scary thing because most people can relate to that they know they've been in that kind of situation where they've woken up everything's kind of hazy like was that a dream did something actually happen did i really hear that sound all of that stuff kind of comes out in a nightmare on elm street and I, I just really like that about it i think there's like there's endless possibilities for nightmare on elm street because freddy can do anything in dream world um and i think that some of the sequels kind of took that to its extreme and made it kind of cheesier than what was originally intended with you know original nightmare on elm street with what Wes craven did um but you know, I, I love the series as a whole, and especially Nightmare 1. I think that's, you know, that's the pinnacle of that series. I think that's probably why, too, with, um, when we're reviewing it, uh, with New Nightmare, specifically called Wes Craven's New Nightmare, mm-hmm. is, um... The rest of them were it, not done by him. Yeah, that they weren't done by him, and that it was gonna have a certain tone, a certain feel... That it wasn't gonna, you know, it wasn't gonna harken, you know, back to the sequels. It was, you know, kind of, as you said, like it was like a reboot. It's like, you know, the other ones kind of didn't happen. Like this is the direct sequel to the first right. film, and that's that's how I kind of think of it because the other ones, I mean, they really don't have that much in common besides Freddy, you, you know, and, and the mythos of Freddy. Um, other than that, there's not really much to hold it, it except for Nancy does come back and the later films and uh but for the most part there's really nothing there that holds them to the original not even the feeling of you know the same aura or atmosphere that you get from the first one um but which which i I, which i won't blame on the franchise itself because i think that's particularly something that just happens in horror films oh i think so too i think just you know like with new new line releasing nightmare one big success they're just like, come on, let's pump them out. We got to get them out now. You know, just getting for higher directors, basically, who have their own kind of, you know, what stamp they want to put on it. And I, you know, I definitely would recommend Never Sleep Again for that because they get into detail about how that came about. You know, what it's a four-hour documentary on Nightmare on Elm Street. So if you're not really a huge fan of Nightmare on Elm Street, 
I would probably not recommend it to you, but if you're really looking to know about the, the inner workings of what happened with the sequels and you know how things came to be, the gayness of part two, <laughs> then um, definitely check out Never Sleep Again. It's on Netflix right now, actually, on Instant, which you can watch four-hour documentary. Wes Craven's in that. Well, I was going to say, uh, adding on to that, I think because of that, I think one of the few franchises that had like a successful direct follow-up and in the horror genre that has like the same feel and style of the first film is Halloween. Halloween 2, that's one of the beauties of Halloween 2 to me. It's rolls like, right in. Rolls right in. Love e- it. Even the, even though John Carpenter's not the director, the person that he that directed the film was somebody that he suggested. He had involvement in the writing. He had involvement in the, you know, the music and the production of it. So like it, it still fits you know the kind of theme with it and that's what to me for when it no getting yeah. a little off topic with it for like yeah, no. the for the that series, that to me is why that's like a great like little one-two punch in the fran- like a, a franchise because it just rolls right into it, and I, you don't see that in most other films. Like I said, like all the other ones, it's usually oh, like we they, this one-off horror film does great. All right, we got to start doing these all the time now, so they get somebody else, they hire somebody else to get you know, and you, that connection gets lost really quickly. Yeah, and I think that that's you know part two. It did get lost right away. Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two was—I mean, it had nothing to do with Wes Craven. It really, what it wasn't like anything that you know had had much to do with him. But it did spin off a TV show, Freddy's Nightmares, um, which didn't last for very long. I do think that Wes Craven—I'm just trying to take a look now. I think he did have a slight role in it. I mean, it had—you know—it was an anthology series, so. You know, it did have different directors, and it was kind of like Tales from the Crypt in that it, it pulled in a lot of different directors that, you know, worked in horror. Um, it, it lasted for about three seasons, and surprisingly, it's like disappeared from, you, you know, you can't really find it on video or anything like that. But it might just be one of those shows I you know, just got lost in It time. is, and it's, I mean, looking back, you can kind of, you can catch some online, it's not a great show. It's not, you know, and it oftentimes has little to do with the mythos of Nightmare on Elm Street, what that's created. Some of them, some of the episodes are really out there, like really different from what you'd see in a nightmare film. But um, it did create, you know, there is that out there. There's the video game, Nightmare on Elm Street video games and, and comics and, and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, he re- Wes Craven really had a character there that was influenced from real life. I mean, it was influenced from what he from a you know a news article he saw about people dying in their sleep and things like that. So, um, I mean, I think that what he had, the character that he came up with, was really inventive and really creative. And I think that's why Freddy has stuck around so long. Um, well, I think as you said before, his like with the dream aspect, you can you know do anything. I think compared to other horror icons like Michael, like Jason. I think that's where Freddy get, is always going to have a more lasting appeal, because you can do anything with him. Yes. And, like, he's... Like, he already has that built-in aspect of kind of, like, he can't be killed. Not where, really. Where, where in, like, you know, with Halloween and Jason, you they it's like they're just coming now up... They, now they have to find ways yeah, for them to, to, to be alive. Yeah. It's just because they've taken it so far, you know, and, you know, what originally were supposed to be just normal people gets, you know, blown into, like, they're these superhuman gods. 
Right. Well, there's a moment in H2O where Michael gets his head chopped off, mm-hmm. and then he comes back, and it's like, oh no, nope, it you know. Well, because in Resurrection they say, oh nope, it was you know it was some- a different guy. Yeah. But see, that they have to do that in those films because there's just no other explanation for it. They they keep coming up with these more extreme ways to kill him off. They're because always they write, have to. They're writing themselves into a corner. And then yeah, and then but but with Freddy, there's no real reason for that. You can always explain it that it was a dream. Mm. That they were stuck in the dream world. That Freddy made them think that that's what mm. happened. There's always an explanation for it that actually makes sense within the reality of the, the, of fr- the film, yeah, of the franchise. And so. that's that's one thing I do like about because again, like I said, it when it comes to you know, Halloween and Friday the 13th, it takes only a couple of films for them to jump from normal people going on murderous rampages to, you know, superhumans. Mm-hmm. Like, but again, as you said, with Freddy, it's always, you know, this is the mythos, this is yep. how it is. And to me, that, I like that kind of continuity, because that's another thing, too, like, with horror films that kind of always bug me. I'm kind of a continuity whore. Mm-hmm. So when, like, things, like, you know, just don't add up and make sense when you, like, you know, remember past things... And that always bugs the hell out of me. Yep. I agree. And um, I think we probably we won't spend much more time on Nightmare because we do have new Nightmare to talk about, um, which we'll get more into that. But, you know, definitely I think there's, there's much love for Freddy. I think that the reason that you talked about that he really can't be killed and that there's always an explanation is why we're seeing a yet another remake pop up because he is such a lasting figure and that there is always something more that you can do with that. There's always something more. Um, so, I mean, and you know, I love Nightmare, so in a way, I, I don't mind that there's another remake coming up as long as it's a good one. I mean, the last remake was not good. I didn't see it. I didn't you didn't bother. see it, but I didn't the last remake was not good. And, and actually, I mentioned Freddy in Space before. Um, he... You mean? Oh no no, Freddy in Space. It's a blog. Oh. Blog. Um, <laughs> or was a blog, John Squires. Um, but he had he had uh, posted on his page a uh, tweet from um, I can't remember one of the horror websites, and they had asked, "What is your least favorite Nightmare on Elm Street film?" And Wes Craven tweeted them back and said the remake, and it was just like just hilarious because he has that kind of meta humor. He he always had that kind of you know. You know, meta, critical, you know, think style of thinking that he brought into his films. So, we haven't talked about some of his, um, you know, less, you know, critically reviewed films. We haven't talked about, you know, like um, the People Under the Stairs, which Scream Factory just recently released on Blu-ray, or Shocker, also released by Scream Factory on Blu-ray. We didn't really talk about The Hills Have Eyes or The Hills Have Eyes Part 2 and some of the, you know, The Last House on the Left. We kind of got into that in the the opener. But um, part of that is because, unfortunately, Martin hasn't seen some of those. Um, I mean, I do. um, I mean, he knows knows about them, but he... I know the titles. I know they're famous. I know they're, you know... You know know kind of what it's about, right? I mean, you know, Last House on the Left is about, basically about a rape and a murder, and then vengeance on the people that committed that. It's kind of, kind of like I spit on your grave slash say, yeah. day of the woman. Um, so I mean, I do know. I mean, I know them. I like you know the history because the, when we were in high school, we had the Hills Have Eyes and that Last House on the Left remakes come out. I remember seeing them in like you know the movie theater and the posters. Yeah, just kind of you know. 
not being like too, uh, I guess you can say impressed, you know, by just like the trailers and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I mean, The Hills Have Eyes is really more, um, it's more like with Last House on the Left, it's more in his exploitation stage of filmmaking. You know, it was in that time period. You had the other video nasties coming out around the same time. I mean, you had, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, things like that. They were really pushing boundaries. Um, and the same is true of Last House on the Left and, and Hills Have Eyes. I mean, Hills Have Eyes has rape in it, too. It basically has the rape in there from the savages. Um, but they're also human, and they've also been kind of segmented off from society. They're they're kind of forced to live in this, you know, this, this air, unpopulated area. Uh, in the desert, basically. And, now, would and you say uh, the hills have eyes have uh, influenced, like, Rob Zombie's House of oh, Thousand Corpses and, like, Devil's Regions? I definitely would say that. I mean, I think that's, you know, in Wrong Turn, things like that. Definitely, I mean, in, I wouldn't say that it, in particular, is the reason for those. I mean, I wouldn't say that, you know, Rob Zombie was like, yep, the hills have eyes, I want to make that into another film, like, you know, for, for myself, but I would, because there were other films along the same lines, but yeah, I would say that there is definitely influence there, because, um, you know, I, I think that it it is one of his less popular films, but it is also prevalent in his canon. I would say it's more prevalent than, like, something like The Serpent in the Rainbow, <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, more prevalent than the Serpent in the Rainbow, and then his later works, which were like Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> well, Vampire in Brooklyn is. I actually did not know that he directed that until yesterday when we saw it on Netflix, and and I saw that that was under his name. Um, so I really, if it, if it has Eddie Murphy in the '90s, I'll probably stay away from that. I really didn't know <laughs> that he had done that, but um, yeah, it's surprising to me. Um, but. Other stuff like Cursed, which was a werewolf movie that in the 2000s that he did. Um, uh, My Soul to Keep, which was one of his later movies, like pretty recent. I, I think it was like 20, maybe 2010 or something like that. I actually didn't see that one, um, but it didn't get good reviews. It, it wasn't like well-reviewed. And I think that's true with many of the, the newer horror directors. I mean, I'm not newer. The horror, older horror directors working in newer film. Well, as I was saying to you earlier, I think when it comes to that, you think of a lot of classic horror directors like John Carpenter and yeah. George Romero. They haven't been putting out, for the most part, good films in. Well, fucking look at Dario Argento. He just put out recently Dracula, his version of Dracula, which is just ridiculously bad. I mean, I, I hated that film. And I love Suspiria. And I love his older Jalo films. And... I don't know if, you know, maybe he's lost his touch, maybe he's running out of ideas, but Dracula was god-awful. Well, I think part of that has to do, too, with, like, is I'm assuming a lot of these old, you know, and I might be totally wrong, I'm assuming a lot of these old directors either aren't getting any funding or, like, you, um, they're not getting funding or, like, backing from any, like, Hollywood, you know big uh, productions, or at least, like, medium ones, because, you know, they're probably considered too damn old to do anything, you know, good. You know, they just want them, you know, to take their old ideas and, you know, have somebody else do something new, because, you know, 
with after Land of the Dead, each George Romero film with Diary <laughs> and then Survival. It's just like you can tell like Well even the, with Land, I'm not a huge fan of Land. I don't like Land don't get I don't like Land either. <laughs> I, I'm just saying I think you can tell that like, you know, like Nobody in Hollywood's really backing him up. They're like, okay, yeah, you, you know, you, you yeah. do your thing. Uh, we'll just take, you know, Dawn of the Dead and remake it. Or, like, you know. And I, I think that's the same thing. Like, you know, I think... I think the... I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last John Carpenter film that he actually had probably some halfway decent money behind it was probably Ghost on Mars. Um, I think that's probably true. I... Um... I know. I mean, he did the Masters of Horror that were that was after that, the episode in Masters of Horror. But yeah, I mean, that, that obviously did not have like a huge budget or anything like that. Um, but I think I, 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 I'm doing some research right now. But I think you you might be right. I think that probably was the last one that he really had. Now, uh, now, granted, like especially with like uh, Carpenter and Romero, they've been more indie backing. They like to do whatever the hell they want to do and whatnot, but. That only goes so far, you know, in today's world where, you know... Well, you've got a lot of indie films releasing now. Yeah. Anybody can really put out Make an it. indie film and put it on Amazon. Yeah. but So I think, like, you know, I think I you know I, I do commend them for, like, staying true to what they want to do. Same thing with Romero. Even though, like I said, I don't like Land, I hate Diary, and I hate Survival Leap. Yeah. Even more, but I think I'll give him props. We're like, look, you know, they, he's trying. He still wants to do it. He's still giving it a shot. But yeah, and I think uh, we'll probably cover George Romero at some other time. But I think his political views are getting in the way of storytelling at this point. But uh, you know, that's getting <laughs> off topic. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, you're right, and and yeah, um, West Craven's, I've. I've I'm glad that Wes Craven's last film was Scream 4, because that was really a good way to go out. I, in my opinion, I know in other people's opinions, they really didn't like it. They, you know, thought that was a, a cop-out, a bad a bad part of that series, but I think in the scheme of things, when, when we are putting they, Scream series together, Scream 4 is really up there for I, me. I think, obviously, they need to watch Scream 3 again. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think maybe they have uh, rose-colored glasses on for Scream 3 and, you know, even Scream 2 is, it has its flaws. It definitely has its flaws. So, I mean, I, I think that Scream 4 is really up there in in what it offers to the to the viewer. Um, well, what do you say? Should we get into New Nightmare, the film that we watched yesterday uh, to commemorate Wes Craven? And, and we wanted to pick something, and I don't, I'm not saying that I think, like, New Nightmare is one of Wes Craven's best films because it's not. I don't think that it is one of his best. I don't think it's the best film. Um, we chose it because it's not one of his most popular films. It's not Nightmare on Elm Street. It's not Scream. Those two are kind of done to the point where what we can add to the discussion is really minimal. It's it'll not. Be, there's nothing. It, there's nothing there that we can say and people would be like. Wow, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I didn't think about it that way, or you know, there's really no point in discussing it because everybody's kind of gone over that a thousand times. Horse, yeah, beat that horse a thousand though, times. So. Though, though, it would have been a fun discussion. It would have been a fun discussion, and you know, who knows? Maybe we'll do it some other time. But we wanted to pick something that was 
not super obscure, but not super popular where every, everybody's talking about it too. So we went kind of like right in the middle and we went with New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, <laughs> as it's titled, um, which I think is an, a really interesting movie because it is one of like one of those films like we've been talking about that is kind of a sequel slash reimagining slash you know reboot but at the same time it's a reboot in the real world that's in a movie so it's one of those really interesting movies that I think that Wes Craven came up with and it was just kind of so different at the time it was so unique and it really played off of you know what Wes Craven did with Metacriticism yeah I I definitely agree with that. I'd say it's that's definitely to me probably one of the most interesting points of this film is the fact that it's not Nancy, it's Heather. Yeah. It's, it's Heather Langenkamp. Heather Langenkamp yeah. playing herself. It's John Saxon playing John yep. Saxon. It's Wes Craven playing Wes Craven. I you think even got like Bob Shea from New Line who plays himself. I, that to me is, you know, that's a really interesting idea. It's basically taking this idea of the movie the, the, exists the movie, in the movie. Yeah, the movie Nightmare exists yeah, in the movie. The movie does exist, but there tr- actually is. You know, Freddy doesn't exist, but there is this evil that exists. An that, ancient, yeah, an ancient evil is what how West puts yeah. it. And that the, the the idea that a nightmare on Elm Street is crazy because West Craven, you know, found out about this ancient evil. And found that the way to kind of contain it is through stories. Well, I mean, and it's interesting because it has a lot of sociological implications and anthropological implications. I mean, in anthropology, there are cultures that do tell stories as a way to keep evil at bay. And that's what Wes is playing, Wes Craven is playing off of in, in the film itself. I mean, the ancient evil is not specifically Freddy Krueger. It's in the same, in the way that we think of the evil is in A Nightmare on Elm Street, but it is an ancient evil that takes on the persona of Freddy Krueger because that's how Wes Craven created and ima- yeah, that's how he ima- it. Yeah, that's how you imagine the evil. I, that's a really cool idea. It is, and I think um, basically like having the actors know like when they were making the film. Not New Nightmare, but when they were making A Nightmare on Elm Street, they knew this, like, you know, like, because Heather constantly throughout the film is like, are you having dreams? Are you having those same nightmares? Yep. You know. They know that it's yeah. possible yeah. for that that evil to come yeah. back, and and maybe not realizing that that specifically is what it is, but knowing that, you know, there is that something that lies beyond, con- like, yeah. regular reality and consciousness is a cool thing that I, I you know, I think is really interesting for New Nightmare and and it is a a kind of a unique film especially within the series because at that point Nightmare on Elm Street was kind of flagging it's like what do we do with that now as a sequel you know what do we do with the next Nightmare on Elm Street there's nothing you know Freddy's already supposedly dead well I think (laughs) I think that's the same thing that you know as we said before that Friday the 13th came in like what the hell are they supposed to do Jason went to hell you know Mm mhm so yeah, you know, I think I think it's you know the same kind of corner they probably wrote themselves. Yeah, like, like oh we killed them off. And then it's like, 
well, shit, people still want these movies. What the hell are we supposed to do? Which was, yeah, which was no fault of Wes Craven. I mean, that was just something that happened not even with his, you know, say or anything. I mean, he didn't have any involvement in, in the other films. But at that point, he had the idea to, instead of just branching off of, you know, what's happening in the actual films, to take it outside the films, to take it to a manufactured reality and then go from there as to Freddy being a real entity. And that's, I, you know, that's really clever. And I think now you would, you know, you wouldn't really get away with that. You wouldn't, you, you know, you, if you take something like, you know, I guess I would say like paranormal activity or something, which has like been just getting like shitloads of sequels dropped on top of it that just continue to just go down in, can't pay <laughs> in quality. Me, can't pay me to watch those movies. There's another one coming out this Halloween. I know. I know. Do you want to see it? No, I, know, I haven't seen any of them just because the idea it's, I mean, those found footage films to me just mm-hmm. wore out their welcome with fucking Blair Witch Project. It's like, go away. Yeah. You're not doing anything. I don't know. I, they don't appeal to me. And I, I know why they're making new films, because they just keep, for some reason... People Somebody keep... keeps putting their money on the table <laughs> and saying, here, take that. <laughs> but, um, like, say, like, we took Paranormal Activity, and we had the actress from the first film who were relatively unknown people at that time. That's that's how, why, how it got mm-hmm. so big, was because there was unknown people in it, it looked like a real film, looked, you know, like Blair Witch Project, yeah. basically. Um, if we took those people, and then we put them in a house... And then it actually turned out to be haunted and stuff. It's the same concept. I don't think it would work as well because New Nightmare already did it. And I think that, you know, New Nightmare really pushed those boundaries when it was released. Well, I think, too, with uh, paranormal activity, there's the horror villain slash aspect of it. There's no real face to it. So if you did that same concept with that film, like, sure, like, it's the actual actors, you know, doing, you know, as themselves, and the entity that was in their film that, you know, is trying to take over his wife and whatnot, if you put it in the Paranormal Activity series, it wouldn't work anywhere near as well, because it's just a faceless demon, you know? Yeah. I think think with New Nightmare, it works so well, because you have, it's Freddy, you know, somebody that you know, somebody that, you know... Everybody knows, as you said before, you know. And I, I think the, the one way it could kind of work for another film is if they took... And it won't be done because it'll be, it, it's considered, it would be considered blasphemous, too risque, too, too on the cuff. Um, is to take Poltergeist and take some of the, like, Craig T. Nelson and, you know, put those in another film, but they're haunted by the ghost of the little girl who played Carol Ann and the little girl that played the sister. It won't work. It won't happen because that's too blasphemous, too grim, too gr- No one wants to think about that. The little girl from Poltergeist died, you know, on, on an operating table. No one wants to think about that. Which, which, but it could be done. Which I, is, I think that would... Well, I think that would be a great idea, too. I mean, you're right. People don't want... Because it's, oh, that's too grim. But when you think about it, it's like you're going to see a goddamn horror yeah. film. Like what? Wait, like what yeah. do you expect? And that—that yeah. that to me, like I mean, I appreciate camp and films to a certain extent and to a certain point. Like you know, depending on what the film's trying to go for. And that to me, like where I, I can appreciate watching a horror film and it having camp if that's like from the outset. That's the, like kind of the tone mm-hmm. of like the, maybe the movie or the entire franchise. But when it like jumps from like 
one film being serious and then the next film being campy, you know, that to me, like, is, you know, a turnoff. That's why I was like, yeah. Friday the 13th, like the first one, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool and whatnot because it's grim, it's dark, and it's, you know, violent. Then you get to Jason Goes to Manhattan and he's fucking kicking some street gang's <laughs> boombox. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, it's funny, but it, it's, it's it's funny, but at the same time, it's like you know, I'm not watching a horror film. How about, the, how about the karate scene on top of the roof? Yeah, you love that. I love that one. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like people might say, like, what the fuck am I talking about? But I mean, that's my that's my main point. Is it's just the absurdity to me, like, kind of just turns me off when it goes too far when the film starts in a certain direction. It might be why, when it comes to like James Bond films, I like my James Bond films to be more serious, more darker, and more grim instead of like the Roger Moore campy style. Oh, I agree, and I, I, I also agree that like I like the Nightmare on Elm Street, the the first one, the original, and to a certain extent, New Nightmare, because it is darker. They are less campy than you know the sequels are generally made out to be um but that said new nightmare is also sometimes campy i mean it's it's it has its corny moments no i agree like the opening part with the glove coming alive Mm -hmm. and running around you know that's like you know creepy but at the same time it's you know a pretty campy thing like you know it looks like like you know i think you know, Wes Craven was kind of messing around with that, too. I think he was trying to draw parallels to both worlds. I think he was trying to not only grab what he had in The Nightmare on Elm Street, which he does quite a bit in the final moments of the film, yeah. but he also is trying to draw from the rest of the series because there's been fans of that for so long now. It's like, how can you not have Freddy be kind of a funny... You know, cracking, wisecracking. You know, wisecracking person. How can you not have that at this point? So I think he was kind of forced into both of those. You know, the connotations of all the films put together. He's kind of forced into that situation. Well, I think he did it well though too, because like, yes, Freddy over the films becomes. I mean, like I said, I haven't seen them all, but I he know becomes a farce. Basically, I, I know he, gets, he he becomes a parody of himself, and like you know the. Sure, the one-liners in the first film are, like, funny but creepy, and as it goes on, it becomes, you know, more over the top, oh, yeah. more of a parody than a parody of a parody. You know, I think he, in New Nightmare, he does a great job. Like, yeah, he does have some one-liners, but they're not, like, joke upon joke upon joke upon joke. It's, like, actual witty little one-liners that fit the situation and scenario that's going on. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, what makes this film smart. One of the things that I think feel could be a positive experience or a negative one in um, New Nightmare is the fact that it really is not set very often in Freddy's iconic dream world of like the boiler room. There's a lot of it really just melds with reality, especially with Heather's, you know, Heather's experience. She's not really sure sometimes what is a real dream and what is reality. So those are all kind of like meshed together. And it doesn't really get into that boiler room slash, you know, Freddy's world, the ancient evil area, until way late in the film when it's finally like concluding. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. 
uh, when I, you know, I, I have fond memories of New Nightmare. I really loved it from the first time I saw it, and I, re- I considered it one of the better films in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Watching it again yesterday, I did recognize that, wow, it's, you know, it's kind of missing some of those, those atmospheric scenes of being in the boiler room that you just know from the other films. I will say I, I do appreciate the, the melding of how, you, like, you know, you don't know until, like, up a certain, to a certain point if you're in the dream world or the reality. Mm-hmm. I do like, you know, when you have Heather at the funeral and she falls over and then she thinks she's falling into the coffin and Freddy's got her son and she's panicking and whatnot and it goes on for five minutes and all of a sudden, you know, John Saxon's like, hey, you're being delusional. Nothing happened. Yeah. That, to me, is, like, really it's cool. A good, it's a good, yeah. It's re- really cool and I think it's... Kind of like to me, like that, like scenario itself is like a unique kind of like daydreaming like uh, aspect that gets kind of added to the film. Yeah, instead of the hard sleep that Ooh. some of the characters have in like the other series, um, the other films in the series, this one is more of a of a daydream. You're right. It's more like a you know there, everything seems really still normal nothing has really morphed into a different area or a di- you know a new setting or anything like that it all seems to it be just real. Seems, yeah. yeah and it's, i mean i think as you get later on into the uh the the series that be- that becomes um skewed i think you know with dream warriors and you know some of the other ones dream child those those instances of things looking like reality are replaced with people being transported into Freddy's world, obviously. Yeah. You know, um, and I mean, I love Dream Warriors. I don't think it's particularly a good film, but I love it because of, you know, the superpowers that it grants its, you know, its warriors and stuff. I think it's fun. I don't think it's necessarily a good film, but I think that with New Nightmare, there there is that that factor of things just they seem right, but they they also seem just a off, off a little. Yeah. So I do like that about it as well. I think it's just I it's just a really kind of smart film, and it, it there's it takes a lot of parts to mock either well not really mock it so not like scream mock slasher films, but to comment on what's come before the the horror genre itself it it actually takes a pretty heavy stance on how parents feel about horror films mm-hmm. how people feel about kids watching horror films i mean there's a there's a doctor in it uh taking care of heather langenkamp's son in the film um who does not mince her words i mean she's basically saying you know your kids should not be watching horror movies they're terrible for kids to see, and they they cause yeah. nightmares and all that. She's very very serious about it. When she says like she thinks, you know, Heather says that he hasn't watched any of the films, and the doctor says, "Well, we think he's a childhood schizophrenic." Very serious topic and various you know serious like diagnosis because that's the symptoms she's displaying. Then as like the scene progresses on and whatnot, and you hear Dylan talking about Freddy, saying Freddy's gonna get her. And when the doctor th- starts to think that the child's been watching these films, she just gets pissed off and is like... It's no longer nice, childhood yeah, schizophrenia, yeah, it's, the, it's the blame of horror movies. Yeah, and the, and the parent, too, for like letting them watch yeah. it. Which I think, 
is a great counterpoint to when you had um, I can't remember his name, but the New Line Cinema. Uh, oh, Bob had, Shea. Bob, Bob Shea. Shea. When he's there and he's talking to Heather about the new film and whatnot, Bob's like, "Come on, you know, you know, kids love these movies. Mm-hmm. Films that are supposed to be directed towards adults, the rated R. Yeah, he openly knows, you know, who's are the main demographic for this children." Well, and the other thing is, um, Heather even mentions, they're like, oh, they love, you know, he, you know, kids, all kids know Freddy. It's not, you know, it's become a kind of a cultural thing. All kids know Freddy. It's not that they, maybe they haven't even seen the films, but they just know of him. He's a cultural icon. Just like an ancient evil is a cultural thing. People know of evil, but not necessarily partake in evil, but they know that it exists. They know that takes many forms. In some way, yeah, evil exists. So, you know, that's... that's, I I think that Wes Craven was drawing parallels to, you know, people who say, you know, horror is causing all these problems. Horror is causing kids to go crazy. Um, Well, that also comes around, like, the same time, too, because the film was released in 1994. comes around the same time when you had, like, Mortal Kombat coming out. Hmm. Played a big part in my childhood. You even it, said that the set looked a lot like yeah, Mortal Kombat when well, you're in the Freddy's uh, or well the ancient yeah, evils like lair. Yeah, for the. Uh, but I said like that. Like I said, like New Line Cinema films like during the '90s, they all kind of had that same look and feel. Like you know, like was this, Mortal Kombat a New Line film? Yeah, '96. Was it? Yep. Yeah, because I, I I wasn't sure. I didn't know if it was or not, but. But, you know, so the film came out during that same time when you had, you know, Mortal Kombat first came out in 1992 and you had, you know, these political advocates saying, you know, oh, we need ratings and monitors, kids are playing this, it's making them deranged and have all these sick thoughts about killing and murdering. You know, it's not just a video game thing, it happens with, like, film and music, you know. You know, you you have a bunch of different people saying how these forms of media have negative effects on people and I think Wes Craven you know was kind of making like a good point in the film like how it's just a movie it's not yeah. you know yeah, gonna make anybody run out with a glove with you know knives on it and start you know murdering people yeah I mean he draws interesting conclusions based on like what horror is and, and it's effects and actually if what he's writing is true, you know, that, or, or, you know, what he believes is that, like, evil is kind of contained within film and contained within story, then a horror movie is the perfect place to contain evil, evil or, t- you know, and as for a metaphor, to, you know, to put all your cathartic feelings into it, because you're not... You're not watching horror movies, and then you're thinking, oh, well, now I need to go kill somebody. You're feeling cathartic because you just saw it on film. You just saw everything. Wow, that guy really got his head chopped mm-hmm. off. Wow, you know, that's kind of fun. But then afterwards, you're, you're not left thinking, okay, well, that really yeah. influenced me to, you know, Don't run out that, and yeah. shoot somebody with my uh, <laughs> my uh, homemade sawed-off shotgun. But I think, I think too, the interesting point was, as we said before, is how... He says in the film that, you know, ev- you know, it's ancient evil, you know. It just happens to be Freddy right now because mm-hmm. he's grown interested in happens, the character. Yeah. And, it, you know, that contains itself within the film. That's why he's Freddy. And I think he has, like, it's an interesting 
comment and observation saying that, you know, evil takes many forms. Evil is this ambiguous idea, this ambiguous action, this ambiguous thing that can be anything. Yep. You know, I, I, different different societies, different civilizations view certain thing how evil is differently. What we hold as an evil may not be an evil to somebody else. And I like how he has changed Freddy in the film. I mean, he doesn't look like Freddy Krueger of A Nightmare on Elm Street. The Freddy of the of Night New Nightmare has its own style. It had like the the burn marks aren't the same and it's intentional it's it not looks like, more, he looks more like especially with his face he looks more like a skeleton with the muscle skull. yes and I think that's intentional because the ancient evil is taking on the persona of Freddy it's not really you know it's not really it's not Robert Englund that's playing Freddy it's the real persona of what the ancient evil is taking on so you know it's it's interesting I think that <laughs> um Speaking of Robert Englund, I think they New Nightmare gets a lot of laughs out of, you know, Robert Englund and Wes Craven and stuff like that. I mean, Robert Englund shows up real quick as himself in a couple of scenes, and he plays kind of this weird kind of creepy guy anyway. I think they're, you know, that was New Nightmare having fun with Robert Englund, and I think... I just know, found Ro- it funny that he's living in some mansion painting shit, yeah. you know, making paintings and whatnot. Because, like, to me... I know all these nightmare films have been made on pretty low budgets. No way in hell the man's made enough money over <laughs> his career to like afford some big ass mansion in Los Angeles and then spend his free time painting. Well, that's why he's doing all those terrible uh, low budget movies right now. <laughs> you see his name on some pretty terrible ones, just like um, Danny Trejo is on some fucking terrible movies. Well, he's a, he's always been. Yeah, I know. But but it's the same thing with like even like Heather. Like she's like she lives in this lavish, you know. It's not a mansion, but it, it's a damn big house, and you're nice like, house. Re- re- really? Like, you've been known for just the Nightmare films? and Well, Wes in the film has a... I don't know if that's really his film or not, but... Or his in, not his film. I imagine. Uh, I imagine. Listen to me, I'm getting a little, getting a little tipsy here. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that's not his house. Yeah, but, but I mean, did the, you the, see the, that? Like, the yeah. fucking pool that overlooks the hills and everything? Yeah, Jesus the nice... Christ. Yeah, the, 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 like, you know, 20 foot long, but like 3 feet foot wide pool, you yeah. know, just meant for like doing laps. I wish I had that. That's fucking awesome. Um, but yeah, I think they, the film definitely has a lot of laughs with the genre and Nightmare series itself. I mean, I, I can't remember the exact line, but I know that um, Wes Craven pokes fun at um, the other Nightmare films when he's explaining the ancient evil. I can't remember what exactly was said, but I know there is like a there is like a little nod to to the other films in there, and then Robert Englund even pokes fun at Wes Craven, saying he's really kind of weird. Yeah, he's you know, weird and crazy. Yeah, that guy's really weird. So I think there's it, it's just that new nightmare really feels that all the characters because they're playing themselves, they really mesh together, and you really get the sense that you know they are good friends, even though you know there's been so much time lapsed between the original yeah. Nightmare and then the new one. I like that about it. I like seeing John Saxon come back, you know, pretending to be, you know, well, not pretending, but in the dream world, morphing into, you know, the the character that he was in The Nightmare on Elm Street, becoming Nancy's dad in that one, driving off in a police car. Well, you, you even see him, too, throughout the film when Heather's going through all her, like, her problems and her nightmares and 
She seems to be like people don't believe her that she's having these nightmares. That Freddy's coming to get her. They just think she's delusional. She needs sleep. She's sleep deprived. You know, John Saxon's you know actually there acting like, like a, a dad, like a dad and yeah. and a friend. You know, saying yeah. he's here for her. He'll do anything that he needs to do for her. You know, he's willing to listen to her problems. You have that scene in the park when you know they're conveniently talking on a bench. He's actually he's the way he was like kind of sitting and leaning over to her. For me, at least, seemed a little uncomfortable with like how like close he was like getting. Yeah. That's just something weird to note for me. It's I found it funny and creepy at the same time. I know, um, but I do love John Saxon. I love love John Saxon. He's one of my favorite. I mean, it's weird to say, but he's one of my favorite actors. I think. I think he's a a very emotive actor. He's been in some Jello films. He's you know he's obviously was in Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so I just. You know, I really like to see him in everything. So it's always it's always great to have him show up, even even if it's just like a bit part in here. But what I really like about um, that new Nightmare Two is that at the conclusion, it really morphs into a Nightmare on Elm Street quite a bit. I think they did a really good job bringing out the aspects of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street with the set and the look of it that really resemble it and it it calls back to that film not only with you know heather trying to to go upstairs and freddy's in the you know the ancient evil's lair um with the you know the marshmallow stairs that that comes from a nightmare on elm street um you know the whole setup takes on the the look of a boiler room but it's actually more of an ancient evil i mean you get a tribal essence from that setting and, and, you know, I, I think the whole thing just really resembles A Nightmare on Elm Street. At the same time, it does its own thing. Well, I think one of the things that I agree with all of that, and what was interesting about it is when I was watching it, too, what it reminded me of, I don't know if you got the same feeling, too, is Scream 3, where I think Scream 3 took the idea kind of a little bit more meta, is the part when they were filming the new Stab film, and Sydney's uh, getting chased around the set of her old, ha- you know, her old house mm-hmm. by the ghost face killer, and how it's kind of similarly set up to like you know the first, right, the first scream, yeah, the first scream. That's like yep. to me it was like see that parallel is really interesting. Yeah, I mean I think he returned to that again in Scream, um, and you definitely see within uh, New Nightmare where he's referencing self-referencing the script itself. I mean, you, there's um, a few moments where things are scripted like it's happening in advance. You know, the script was written in advance. There's a, there's the essence of fate that's coming out in that, too, that things are fated to happen this way. Like the scene with uh, Dylan jump, trying to jump off the really high... Yep. I mean, she part, catch... Yeah. yeah. That it was already... Wes already had that part written down in mm-hmm. his script, and it's not until later that Nancy finds out that everything that's been happening has been what Wes has been writing in his script. It's getting really windy now. <laughs> I think uh, that's... Maybe that maybe that's a sign. I don't know. It's it's like it's a perfect windy night to be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven, and horror movies. So I think that's uh, it's a sign here. So hopefully <laughs> the wind isn't really affecting the podcast too much. But um, So I, I think... What I have to ask now is, did you like the film? Because I know you you didn't actually 
you haven't actually seen New Nightmare before. I did like it. I thought it was entertaining. I you can definitely see how the film itself is a a prequel to Scream mm-hmm. in a sense of the meta-ness of it and playing off a of franchise and horror tropes. I do like that. I thought it was it wasn't a scary film at all. I'll no, say, it's I, not I, super it, scary. No. But it did have enough suspense in it. It did have enough going with it to be a good film and it be a very interesting film. I will say at parts it's a very dry film. Mm-hmm. It is at points very dull and kind of monotonous and boring. Yep. But overall, I think it, it is an entertaining film and I think you should watch it just because I think, especially if you like the Scream franchise and you've never really watched Nightmare before. anything, uh, New Nightmare... I think it kind of you can see the direction that West will be going with. Even though I know West didn't write the scripts for Scream, yep. It's still you can tell like that's there is there is uh, definitely influence. Yeah. yeah, Kevin Williamson definitely influenced by. Yeah, but I yeah I would say it's a good film. I would. I mean, watching it again, obviously I've seen it like probably four or five times. I would say, um, watching it again, you definitely pick out some flaws. I think um, you know. The, the kid in it, Miko Hughes, needs work in well, there. I well, mean, as I said before, child actors overall, nine times out of ten, they're fucking terrible. It's only a dime a dozen you'll come across where a kid actually yeah. plays a part. And I mean, I mean, he does an okay job. I think there are some goofy moments where he's been told to enact like a Freddy sort of style voice. And it's it doesn't work as well as they wanted it to work I think some of the effects are really dated and that's no the ending ending is terribly dated terribly dated and that's not really a fault of the film it's just the 90s I mean we just have to kind of accept it by 90s after Jurassic Park everybody had to throw CGI into their films so I mean that's just something that was a product of the time there's really no you know you either accept it or you don't I guess and and that's just something that you have to accept. I will say that Miko Hughes, the kid, reminds me a lot of the kid in the Santa Claus. Yes, he does. He's not. Yeah. I had to look it up because I was like, is that the kid from the Santa Claus? But he's not. But he does remind me a lot of that. Um, so Scott Calvin. Scott Calvin's kid. <laughs> um, Thank you, Judge Reinhold. We should really do that on the podcast at some point, too, Santa Claus. Because I think we can get a lot of mileage out of that. Perfect. Right, or, right when we do Christmas vacation. Yeah, as well. probably get trashed and do that one <laughs> with a with the uh, drinking game. The drinking game. Yeah, I'm sure you could find a drinking game on the Santa Claus, and you'll be shit. You should probably do a podcast after we get trashed on Christmas with the cranks too, because that would be. I mean, probably we can't even have any coherent sentences on that one. But make, um, make sure we drink nothing but the lightest of light beer. Yeah. Um, but you know. New Nightmare, I think for me, I remember what, you know, I watched it in college um, when I did the whole Nightmare series, and that was like the first, I think those were the first posts I ever did on the moonisdeadworld.net. Was the New Nightmare? Was, um, well, like the, the Nightmare. Nightmare series, I did a whole marathon of it, and I remember, because I would watch like one a night, and that was when I... I mean, you can tell I had literally fucking nothing to do at college because I was like, let's start a blog. I have literally nothing to do. Let's give myself more work to do. So I, um, yeah, I, I did the whole, shit, it's fucking windy. I did the whole series on there. Um, and I remember 
I was like watching them back to back to back, and the getting through like four, five, six was kind of like a a, a chore. A chore, and getting to New Nightmare was like, wow, you know, this finally something, you know, something that's a lot better than what I've been watching, you know, before. So, um, it was it, it's a really good experience, and um, I, I would definitely recommend New Nightmare. Uh, you know, to watch it and see where A Nightmare on Elm Street went to, you know, it, it's definitely what I consider one of the sequels of Nightmare on Elm Street. It's definitely made me want to go out and watch the rest of them. The rest of them, yeah. See, I think know. it does that. And and hopefully it makes you want to revisit Wes Craven's films and, um, you know, any of the ones that you haven't seen, definitely check out. He, I mean, I, I consider him one of the, the masters of horror of my generation and and certainly you Def- know he definitely made uh the rebirth of the slasher with scream if, if he didn't have scream you wouldn't have you wouldn't had, have a uh, new slashers you wouldn't have like hatchet or anything like I know that he did last summer yep you know with the ni- late night he was plagued with and um we're just really i'm really sorry to see him go because i think we could have done he could have done even more for the the film genre i think um I do think he did, as you said, he went out on a good note. Scream 4 is, Scream 4 is, a, is a good film to go out on. And, um, you know, that's... I think that really shows his legacy. And to see everybody just celebrating his life and to celebrate what he had accomplished is a really, is a really great thing. And, you know, even though I didn't grow up, you know, throughout his entire career, I definitely feel a part of, you know, what he did and... and to be a horror blogger writing about his his stuff now, it, I, I'm just you know proud to have had that experience to to talk about his his films and his characters and what he created. So, um, on that note, I think we're gonna end this uh, Wes Craven retrospective um, to say thanks for for all the stuff that he provided, all the all the characters, all the great characters like uh, you know Freddy Krueger that uh, became part of his filmography and hopefully that all lives on uh for other horror film you know buffs that that check out that stuff and some of his more obscure works like invitation to hell or uh, which is a, a, a tv movie or uh, deadly friend you've probably seen the uh, gif around where the person throws a basketball at another's head and their head explodes that's deadly <laughs> <laughs> so um that stuff you know, I, I think it's going to live on, and Wes Craven's influence on horror film as a whole will definitely continue, and we'll, we'll see it time and again. Hopefully his influence comes back. I hope, I hope. Because like I, as you said before, paranormal films like Paranormal Activity are kind of ruling the roost. They need to go away. Yeah. And um, hopefully, you know, his influence really provides the the uh, inspiration for something the, new and, and the new it. nightmare film that's coming out the remake hopefully they really go off of you know what he started in a nightmare on Elm street and and take that to heart and i'm glad to see that you know companies like screen factory are releasing some of those hard to find or out of print films that you know directors like west craven have put out because some of them are really important that people just really don't see because they're less known and yeah they're less known it's hard to it's hard to imagine with the inner the days of the internet now that there's shit still out there that you it's hard to find yeah you know get a hold of yep 
I mean, hell, there's been episodes of, like, Red Jack and Lupin that I've been trying to watch for fucking years, and, and they're just it's damn near, damn near impossible to find, but... And Which is nice of, you know, Screen Factory and Shout Factory, too, you know, with the other releases, and finally get a hold of some of these films so people can experience them. And I've got to say, I'll, I'll end this retrospective right here. I need to see The Fireworks Woman from Abe Snake. <laughs> Until next time, we'll be back with uh, Vegas Vacation and European Vacation. God help um, you all. Yes, <laughs> and help us too because we still have to watch Vegas Vacation. So help us. We're going to need a lot of beer on that one. Um, if you have any suggestions for us, um, if you want to write in and you know tell us what movies we should watch next, uh, definitely write us at Blood and Black Rum Podcast at gmail.com. Um, definitely find us on iTunes because we are there, so you should subscribe. We also have a SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash blood and black rum podcast. And um, any of the other major places that you can listen to a podcast, you can find us, like Stitcher. So definitely check us out, subscribe, help spread the word, and hopefully, you know, we will be back again real soon with uh, Vegas Vacation and European Vacation. Thanks for listening.